0: Welcome to Episode 2 of the Smith Creek Archaeological Project Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Stanley. In our first episode, we began our conversation with Dr. Meg Kassebaum. Meg is Assistant Curator of the American Section at the Penn Museum in Philadelphia and the Director of the Smith Creek Project. Meg and I spoke about some of the prehistory of the Indian Mound site on which the project is focused. And I learned, among other things, that the site's original creators abandoned it centuries ago. Which brings us to the obvious follow-up question. What happened next? Okay, uh,
1: what about
2: the modern history of this site? Um, what, can you, what can you tell me about any kind of research that's gone on with it? or?
1: Yeah, so it's got a pretty interesting history. Um, we don't know for sure when it was first... Encountered, I guess. I mean, there are all sorts of, like. So, for example, the the Penn Museum um, has a collection from Montrovel W. Dickinson, and we've talked a little bit about this in the past. Um, we have. But he, I, but just just to make sure that it's all down. <laughs> okay. uh so he, um, he was a collector, who, he was a physician in Philadelphia. He worked for the Academy of Natural Sciences. Um, and he got really interested very early on in sort of American archaeology with understanding the archaeology of the mound-building populations of the American South. And he just, he got fascinated. And so he, um, he did a lot of collecting, uh, a fair amount, a little bit of digging here or there at sort of mound sites throughout the lower Mississippi River Valley. Um, and he brought this stuff back to Philadelphia, um, and at this point, it's now in our collection. So it was Academy of Natural Sciences collections for a little while. Now it belongs to the museum. Um, so his collections are—they range sort of from really fantastic objects. We've got a couple of them on display now in Native American Voices um, to uh, literally thousands of pebbles that he seemed to think were important archaeologically that really aren't. Um, so I mean, we've got we've got thousands of objects from him. In general um, did
0: he have any kind of archaeological background like
1: no he really didn't I mean he was uh, I guess he was what we may call today we call them avocational archaeologists so they're people who um, they're amateurs they're not they're not trained in any formal way um, but they've got a pretty true and honest interest in the subject so they aren't necessary they aren't just collectors either you know their goal isn't to go out there and get stuff for their own personal gain. Generally, when we talk about avocational archaeologists, we talk about people without training, but who have like a real interest in it. They want it for the right reasons. They want to increase our knowledge, and I think we can consider Dickinson one of those people. I mean, he had a real—the coolest thing about him, I think, is he had a real commitment to public archaeology. I mean, his goal was to like teach the public what he was learning, and so he um, he traveled the the sort of country giving lectures on on the mound builders of eastern North America, and particularly on the Mississippi Valley. And his sort of most famous lecture, um, I think the title, if I'm getting it correct, is Monumental Grandeur of the Mississippi Valley. And he basically um, talks about all of the mound sites as he travels down the Mississippi. And to be honest, sometimes the Mississippi involves things like the Rocky Mountains and the Ohio River, which aren't actually part of the Mississippi Valley. But in his mind, he kind of, like, squishes them all together. Um, so the most incredible thing about this, and I've shown pictures of this in some of the talks that I've given, um, is he, ha- he commissioned a giant painting, a panorama, um, to accompany him. It's kind of like a primitive version of PowerPoint. It, like, scrawled behind him as he spoke, so you got a different image for every site that he was describing. Um, And that's where you see, like, an image of the Rocky Mountains suddenly and some sites in Ohio that really shouldn't be there. Um, But generally, he was trying to get the point across to the American public that these mountains were really incredible and they were monumental places sort of worth seeing and worth protecting. Um, So we know he visited sites in the area. And in particular, we know he visited a site called Feltis, um, which is the site that I dug previous to this. Um, where you did your dissertation. Where I did my dissertation. Um, so that that excavation was run primarily through UNC Chapel Hill, where I did my Ph.D. and my advisor there. Um, but we know he went there. We know he dug there. Um, some of the objects we have on display at the Penn Museum right now are from that site. Um, now, Smith Creek, the site that I'm digging now, dates to the exact same time period as Feltus. Um, It very well could have been on sort of a tour of sites that he went to but it's not one he chose to paint into his panorama um, and it's not one that we've identified in his collection so we'll probably never know whether he stepped foot on that site or not I mean maybe we could, you know, maybe in the future we'll be able to to get a little bit more convenience information on some of his collections and find out, but a lot of that work's been done and at this point we don't know that he was there, Um, but him and other early sort of you know, early American archaeologists or avocational archaeologists, they may have been by there. They were certainly at sites nearby. So they may have seen Smith Creek. They may have mentioned it. Um, but the first excavation that we know about like 100% for sure um, was by a group called the Junior Archaeological Society of Baton Rouge. Um, it was basically kind of like a Boy Scout troop, though there were girls there too. Um, but it was a group of kids who were led by a guy by the name of J. Ashley Sibley of Baton Rouge, um, who came... Sorry, what year was this? I think their excavations took place primarily in the late 1950s and early 1960s. I don't know. I know we've got some records, I think, from 1963 and 1964, but we don't have, like, a for-sure um, date range of when he was there. We know those because he, he actually made the kids write these, like, ador- adorable little, like field reports that sort of outline what they did and we have those from a couple of years in the 60s but we also know he was there before that um, we just don't know exactly what those years were um, so he focused on the burial mound which is pretty typical of of avocational or collectors um pe- people especially during that time period because that's where they thought all of the really kind of cool fancy stuff was going to be found um, so what we know about this group is they, they came over, they excavated in the burial mound, which we call Mound B at the site now. Um, they put a pretty huge trench in it, and they didn't fill it back in, which is something that we'll do this summer. We'll always fill our excavations back in to stop them from sort of eroding away and, and causing further damage to the site, but he didn't. So you can actually still see the outline of his excavation in the mound site today, and if you go there and walk through every once in a while, you'll see new things sort of eroding out. So they did do some damage to the site, but... Um, And his recording left a lot to be desired. We have, like, one really pitiful map um, of of where he dug. Um, But we do have a list of artifacts uh, that they say they found, um, most of which we've never been able to find. You know, we don't know where they are. Um, So this guy, um, Sibley, collected all of these artifacts with these kids um, through all these excavations, and he took them back, and he started basically, like, a mini archaeological museum in in northwestern Louisiana. Um, And at some point I don't know the whole history of this um, at some point Sibley died and the museum basically was abandoned Um, and all the artifacts were left in it all the records were left in it they didn't they didn't do anything with it he just died and everybody forgot about it um, fairly recently a guy named Jeff Gerard who's an archaeologist now in Louisiana um, came across this museum basically got called in and was like hey I just found this abandoned archaeological museum in Louisiana do you think you want the stuff that's in it and he was like okay I've got to go out there and i got to see it so he went out and he collected um sorry where did this phone call come from you know i don't know the answer to that off the top of my head i could ask jeff um there's a lot of the story that's still a total mystery to us um my guess is that it was just someone locally who was looking to sort of tear down the building and you know get it off their property or get it off their neighboring property or something like that and probably no one had been in it a long time they had no idea what was in there um and then when this person went in, they were like, oh, okay, well, this is actually important and I need to get in touch. And usually in these sort of small rural parts of the South, there's like the one archaeologist who you call when you know something. And Jeff Girard is that archaeologist for that area. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think he got called just because this person probably didn't know else who else to contact. So I can ask Jeff, but I don't, you know, off the top of my head, I don't know exactly where the call came from. Um, but he went in and he collected all the material. He got all of the archaeological material he could out of it. Um, from my understanding from talking to him, he also found a couple file cabinets that maybe have additional records in them of these excavations, but he, he, has yet to be able to unlock them, which is problematic. Um, so I haven't talked to Jeff about it recently, but when he first found the material, what he wanted to do was hand it off to someone who actually had interest in the sites that it was coming from. And so he contacted, uh, my advisor at UNC and me and asked if we wanted it. So it all got shipped to UNC last year. Um, What's your advisor's name? Uh, my advisor is Vin Stepanitis. Um He's uh, the director of the Research Laboratories of Archaeology at UNC Chapel Hill. And so that material uh, is now split between UNC and Penn. Some of it came with me up here so that I could continue analyzing it, and some of it stayed down there so, so some other folks could continue analyzing it. But basically um, what we have from there is is human bone um, animal bone, a little bit of, of stone material, so a couple arrowheads and things like that, um, and ceramics. Uh, the ceramics are what came with me to pen. The animal bone and the um, lithics stayed at UNC for now, and then the human bone was all sent to the Louisiana Department of Justice um, for analysis, and they would they were sort of handling all of that. So um, we recently got a report back from them. To be honest, I haven't read it yet. Uh, But we just got a report back that sort of tells you, like, the age and the sex, the health status, everything of the individuals who are collected by them, which could be really cool. But I got it a couple days ago, so I haven't looked at it.
0: Meg has looked over this report in depth since our conversation and has also met with the folks who did these analyses at the annual meeting of the Society for American Archaeology. As with most archaeological work, it's answered a lot of important questions, but of course also brought up some new ones.
1: And then the ceramics were, you know, more or less what we expected to find from the site, but give us a much larger sample than what we had before. Um, so that's a really long way of answering the question that that's the first excavation we know about at the site. Um, it's one of the things I'm really looking for forward to doing either this summer or sometime in the future is talking to the people who are still alive who are on that excavation Um, so we know there are a few uh, there's a woman named Ginny Benoit in Natchez who is still there and then a guy named Joe Collins who's actually an avocational archaeologist in in the area right now Um, and they were both, they both worked at the site at some point in the past, Ginny on this particular project and Joe a little bit later on but they're kind of great um, resources for me I guess to kind of figure out we know roughly where they dug but we don't know what else they did i mean maybe they put small excavations in other places or maybe they remember exactly what was found from where and at this point you know all we know is that all came from this mound we don't know much else so i'm hoping to work with them and try and reconstruct some of those records and and learn a little bit more about this stuff so that it doesn't just go to waste um so after that big excavation, to continue the history, how big was that? It, like, do you know how long it lasted,
2: um, or how many people were taking part?
1: I only roughly. So we know they went. We know that they were there for like a roughly four years, doing pretty significant excavations. But there are reports of them coming back many times after that. And what we don't know is like if they dug a lot each of those times. There's great stories about like them. Uh, they would they would perform Indian ceremonies on top of the big mound. Now, what exactly Indian ceremonies are, I have no idea, but I presume that it involved a bonfire and some dancing and probably some like relatively awkward, stereotypical Indian stuff. Um, you know, part of this. His goal, Sibley's goal, which I find laudable in some ways, but also horrifying in others, was to just convince these kids that Indians were cool. And so he was willing to do that through whatever he needed to do, you know, dancing, sort of, you know, fake stereotypical Indian stuff. But also, at least the kids came away knowing that Indians built these mounds that were in their backyard, and I think that that's really important. So, you know, he had good and bad effects, um... So, we, so what we don't know is if, if every time they went out there for their little ceremonies, whether they dug as well or not, we're not entirely sure. Um, we do, the map we have, I think, tells us that, and I, I'll check on these numbers for you, but I think it's like a 10-foot a ten foot trench, 10 by 5-foot trench, roughly, that they cut into the is this map. the adorable map that you were yes. talking about? Yes, and it is, like, the least useful map I've ever <laughs> in my life. It's got, like... Squares that are really rectangles but should be squares depend, like based on how they're described in the records. And then it's got, like, I don't know what how to describe it, like, what should be, I guess, a topo map of the mound, so it's got, like, a flat part, which presumably is the top, and then it's got lines going down the side that I think are supposed to represent, like, the slope, and then another circle that's supposed to represent the bottom. And then there's a series of rectangles drawn into that with no scale. No, like, this equals this. No, like... Just nothing, just no labels, but I, but it tells us where it was almost as accurately as seeing the giant scar that they left in the mountain tells us where it was. But it's a pretty funny map. Um, it's worth it's worth putting on one of the blog posts or something as an example of really bad record keeping in archaeology. Um, and yet they're kids, you know. I mean, that's the thing that like. I wish that kids hadn't dug in a real burial mound, but they are kids, and as Joe has indicated and various other people, I mean, some of these kids became interested in archaeology and actually went on to learn more about it. So, I mean, it's not... It wasn't an entirely bad thing. I just wish it had been run by somebody who did a better job keeping records. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he was an interesting character. He gives us some interesting history to the yeah, that's, that's a lot of interesting history.
2: Uh, but... Um, What kinds of, well, well, what happened,
1: uh, what's happened since then? Okay, so since him, um, the site has been visited a number of times by sort of what, you know, contemporary professional archaeologists, uh, but no excavations had taken place. Um, At one point, and I'll have to check on the year, I don't know exactly when it is, um, but this guy named Joe Collins, who lives in the area now, um, put an excavation in on the southern end of the site in order to basically at the, at the request of the landowner um, because they wanted to put, there was like a, a pigsty or something like that that was like turning up a lot of pottery and they were worried they were destroying part of the site. So they asked him to like excavate that area before they did any more damage to it. And so he did that. Um, and he is, I guess I should say informally trained. So he doesn't have a PhD or anything like that. Um, but he really does know what he's doing. He's a good archaeologist. Um, he records things accurately and effectively for the most part and he, and he wants to work with professional archaeologists now. Um, so he's actually been out to the site with me and shown me like roughly where he dug. He's in the process of searching for all the records from his site for me. He's given me a few that he's found but there should be more somewhere. Um, but he was one of the first people to, to dig there that was actually able to tell us like, not just about what artifacts he found but about what else he found like the the features and so by features we mean uh, things of archaeological importance that can't be picked up and removed from the site so hearths post holes um, pottery piece places where pottery was was built formed and fired you know various things like that so he actually recorded on that reported on all of that he told us that there were post holes um, so that tells us that not only are there artifacts at the site but there's actually intact like archaeological floors where human activity took place, so his excavation is actually is very useful to me. And um, the general area where he dug is one of the places we'll be digging this summer. So um, two students in particular have expressed interest in digging down there, so I'm probably going to assign them to to that unit. But we want to get down there because that's an area of the site that doesn't have a mound on it. Um, that will be really, that will be really cool. And we wouldn't necessarily have known that there was like a guarantee of finding stuff there if it hadn't been for Joe's excavations there in whatever year that was (laughs) that I'll have to look up. Um, so then after Joe, um, that's really it. There've been a couple other excavations nearby, um, that tell us a little bit about the surrounding area, but at the site proper, it's really just, Sibley, and then Joe Collins, and then um, us in 2013 when we just tested the site uh, briefly, um, and then.
2: Can you elaborate on that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's the project that we've uh, talked a fair amount about—the Mississippi Mound Trail project, um, which is a public archaeology driving trail that we've been working with the state of Mississippi. Um, Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Federal Highway Department to develop. So, I mean, as you're driving around, you can imagine you see, like, historic markers, those brown signs that have, like, you know, this church was here in this particular time period, or, like, this person was born near here. We're basically trying to create prehistoric markers um, that draw attention to the prehistoric sites in the area as well as the historic sites, um, with the goal of sort of pointing out that the history of Mississippi and of sort of the U.S. in general, extends well before Europeans arrived. Um, So this particular project is kind of modeled after a trail that already exists in Louisiana, um, which is a driving trail of mounds. It's incredible. It's been a really neat experience. I've taken my students to a lot of them, sort of driving them around. Um, But Mississippi doesn't have one yet. And so we in, uh, gosh, let's see. So it would have been in 20... 13 in February we did the first phase of the project where we basically went out um, and we mapped all of the sites and Detail using a total station piece of surveying equipment, kind of like the ones you see people using on the sides of the highway. Um, the ones that look like cameras a little bit. Yeah, they look like cameras on giant tripods, sure, and then there's yes. usually someone holding like a stick across. I, yeah, I just saw a photo of a bunch of kids
2: posing for a
1: photo yeah. in front of one. <laughs> yeah, so we use those, um, and it's exactly how it looks. I mean, you're staring through a thing on a giant tripod at someone with a stick really far away, basically. Um, and we use this to map all the sites, and the goal was to. Get accurate maps that we could put on the we could put as like an image on these um, on these historical markers or prehistoric markers, and then also provide like a like a, a pamphlet, I guess more or less, for people to use as they're driving around. But we wanted accurate maps instead of historical maps that sometimes show things that are no longer there and everything like that, because we wanted the public to be able to like look out over the site and see like oh that bump is this bump on this map, and that bump I can see in the field over there is this bump. Um, so we mapped all of them in February of I'm pretty sure twenty thirteen. So like time's like squishing together now, but I'm pretty sure it was February twenty six. So then we went out the summer of of twenty thirteen after that. And we excavated at most of the sites we mapped. Um, All of that was contingent on landowner permission, so some of the sites we mapped, we never got permission to dig. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be a marker there. There may be a marker with minimal information and a map and whatever we know from previous investigations. Um, But for the most part, we wanted to do our own excavations at these sites. So one of the sites on the Mound Trail is Smith Creek, the one that I'll be digging at, Um, and that basically gave me the excuse to dig there for a couple of weeks, put a couple of test excavations in, and more or less like test the waters to make sure it was worth coming back to this summer with a bigger group of people, more money, and more time. Um, I think, gosh, I'll have to look up the numbers. In total, we I I think we excavated... 12 mound sites that summer and we did one third of the trail basically we did the southern third of the trail there's a central portion and a northern portion that were done by um, Ole Miss and Southern Miss uh, respectively so I don't know off the top of my head how many sites will be on the trail total but I could find that out um But Smith Creek will be one of them. It'll actually be the southernmost site on the trail, so it's the one closest to Louisiana. Um, I kind of like that because it means everybody's like ending there if they actually do the whole thing. Um, So we did very brief excavations there, but at least they were our own excavations, so we were able to sort of determine all the methodology, um, determine what was recorded and what wasn't, and then use that data to help me plan my excavations for the summer. And that site, is it publicly accessible? So all of the sites on the Mound Trail are publicly accessible in the sense that you can see them from public land, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can walk on them. So a lot of them are on private land, but they're on private land with a road running through it. Um, So they have pull-offs the same way that most historical markers do, you know, like a little paved area off to the side of the road, you can pull off there, you can read the sign, and then at the bottom of the sign it'll either tell you that you're welcome to walk onto the mound or it'll tell you that it's private land. in the case of Smith Creek, the site's owned privately, so they ask that nobody walk on the mounds. Um, but you can clearly see all three of them just from standing at the pull-off. I actually went down there when I was in February and took a picture, like a panorama, from standing on the pull-off to sort of show what the view would be from there. And, and they're all, I mean, you can definitely tell they're there, and especially if you're staring at a map of the site, then you'll definitely be able to tell sort of where they are, which ones are which. So.
0: It may be visible from the road but it's important to note that the Smith Creek site is not on public land. This mound site is on family-owned property, and its owners have no obligation whatsoever to allow an archaeological dig to be carried out on their land. That got us talking about the kinds of arrangements that Meg had to make in order to ensure that the excavation could actually get underway.
1: So, I mean, legally all I needed was permission of the landowner, and uh, I choose to try and get that in writing when I can, but it's a, there's no rule that states that. I mean, they just have to give you permission. Basically, you have to make sure you're not trespassing. Um, in this case, it's a little more complicated. The land is owned by um, an older woman, and her son actually lives on the land, though he does not own it. Um, so... Obviously, I need both of their permission because she 's the one that owns it so legally I need her permission, but he 's the one whose house i 'm going to be digging next to, so I obviously need his permission um, so I also felt like I needed permission of his siblings because no one 's quite sure who that land is going to get passed on to um, should their mother should their mother pass away anytime soon so I met with some of his siblings as well. Um, And so what I basically, what seems like is if I have Jenny's permission, the mom, I have Ricky's permission, the one that lives on there, and I have Kathy's permission, Kathy can kind of, like, speak for the rest of them. Um, No, there's nothing to say. I don't have any of this, like, written down that for the next five years I'm allowed to come back whenever I want. I'll renegotiate this every time. Um, Some of the kids could change their mind. If it passes to one of the siblings I didn't meet, maybe they'll decide they don't care what Kathy thought. You know, I I don't have control over that stuff. And so... uh, You'll notice when you're down there with me, but I mean, I, I treat my landowners really well. I will bring them presents, and I will give them beer whenever they come over, and I'll invite them to see the excavations all the time, and I'll invite them to our field house for dinner. I mean, we try and and really create solid relationships with these people so that those sorts of turns of events don't happen often. Um, but there's no way there's no way to predict them. She could sell the land. I mean, tomorrow she could sell it and not be the legal owner anymore, and I'd have to renegotiate all of this. There's so many contingencies. Um, but that's why you have to build up the relationship of trust, that they'll let you know if they're thinking about doing something like that, and you'll let them know what you're planning to do with the place. Um, the only other body that I felt like I needed to, um, to get in touch with regarding this was the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, which is uh, sort of the, the main, the only archaeo- true like, state-associated archaeological organization there. Um, it's a s- part of the state government, uh, and they're great. I don't technically need their permission to do it, um, but I, I want it. I mean, they're, they are there to support me. Um, they're the ones that protect the site when I'm not there. It, you know, I mean, they're, they're sort of there to look over the archaeological resources of the state, and, and I feel better having their sort of blessing to go ahead with the project. Um, One group that I haven't talked to yet but plan to at the beginning of the project are are some of the Native tribes that would potentially have interest in the site. Again, I'm under no legal requirement to talk to them because it's on private land. Um, And we're not planning on digging burials, which tends to be the primary thing that they're worried about. Um, But I think it's really important to have that working relationship with the tribes. And so I don't expect that they are going to feel the need to either give us or not give us permission in any sense i just think they want to know what's going on they want to know we're doing it so that in case they start hearing that like you know we are pulling burials out they want to be aware of all of that sort of stuff so i will eventually consult with them um but yeah i mean it's really only the landowner that's an actual obligation um beyond that it's just sort of trying to build up those relationships that can be helpful in the long run what other besides for landowner permissions what other kinds of
2: preparations do you have to make for this kind of a project?
1: Well, this was an interesting experience for me because this was the first time where I was in charge of all of that. Um, so I now have a pretty exhaustive list. Uh, but the big ones, of course, are—I mean—you have to—you uh, have to amass the equipment that you need. Uh, a lot of schools already have that. Penn didn't have a lot of the equipment, so I've been no. like on a—yeah, no—they um, most of the because most Penn projects take place in other countries. A lot of the equipment stays there. So uh, Harold has equipment in France, and the Gordian Project's equipment stays in the fancy Gordian buildings at Gordian. And um, there's all sorts of things. Lauren has her equipment in Azerbaijan, and Clark has equipment in Peru, and nobody brings it back. Um, I'm not used to that, because I came from an institution where most of us were working within the U.S uh so for me that was both a challenge and really exciting it was kind of like going christmas shopping for yourself so you just got to buy everything and i mean we're talking everything from like sharpies string and rulers through like a thousand dollar cameras and like surveying equipment so i mean it, it was a cool experience um but it was hard it took a long time one to actually find all the stuff and buy it but also to remember everything you use you know i have, i have like a field kit at UNC that I always took with me and it was kind of ready to go and I was like oh god I have to come up with this list so I have this like running word document on my computer of everything I could think of like oh that one day in the field we use this thing I should add that to my list um so buying equipment was a huge part of it um but there are other really huge things you got to find a place for people to live um you've got to figure out if that that place is going to be livable does it you know is it is it going to be high-end? Is it going to be low-end? Does it have air conditioning? Does it have Wi-Fi? These are all the sorts of questions that students want answers to. Um, and the answers to those questions can range dramatically. Uh, but you've got to find somewhere, and you've got to figure out how to pay for it. And you've got to figure out how you're going to eat while you're down there. And you've got to figure out if you've got the right balance of people with experience and not with experience. you got to get the P, your crew set. Um, the, I, mean, the, I guess those are the biggest things. I mean, permissions, equipment room and board accrue money, of course, and you have to secure the funding to do it. Um, i got to be able to pay for all these people to eat. i got to get a car that gets us back and forth from the site. So the preparations, I mean, honestly, I feel like the preparations have taken up a good chunk of my time this semester. Um, But my hope is that after doing it this first time, the time commitment next year will be... More reasonable, because um, a lot of it will be done. I will hopefully won't, unless everybody breaks everything. I won't have to replace that much equipment. And if I'm lucky, I can we can stay at the same house and use a lot of the same arrangements as as we did this summer. But we'll see how it all works out before before we commit to that.
2: And where did funding come from
1: for this project? So I have um, a fairly large startup uh, grant from the university. The School of Arts and Sciences gave me a pool of money to draw from in order to get a research project started. Um, I also got a $10,000 grant from the Director's Fund for Field Research through the museum, um, which was really generous and is helping uh, to buy a couple of specific pieces of equipment I wasn't sure I could afford, um, and also to, to pay for the van rental while we're down there. So that that bought us a couple of really important things and allowed me to save a little bit of my uh startup fund to run the project again next year um so right now those are the the two main sources of funding and the idea with this field season is that i'll get enough data out of this field season to have kind of a pilot project and some basic data from which to write larger grants for future seasons um and i knew that that would be the case which is why i negotiated for this as part of my startup package is it's hard to do that your first year um but once you have the data and you can say this site's really worth it, then you're more likely to get funding from National Science Foundation, National Geographic, you know, all these other places that, that fund archaeological research. So so that will change next year. But for this year, it's basically the Penn Museum and the School of Arts and Sciences.
2: Uh, the lack, okay, you said that there, um, in our last interview, we talked about... Uh, this ancient Coles Creek culture and their, and the potential for any lineage between them and, um, and uh, a tribe that exists today. Right. Um, and that there is a minimal... Uh, I mean, there's potential for that, but in terms of uh, direct connection, yeah. not so much.
1: No, that tribe was wiped out by the French. <laughs> uh, so, do you think that is
2: um, let's, let's say this was a creek site Or, um, or a Chickasaw site um, Do you think that would uh, Do you think
1: this would be a more difficult Thing to go about if that were the case? Um, I don't know if it would be more difficult But it would definitely be different So actually both the creek and the Chickasaw Especially the Chickasaw are um, an incredibly wonderful group to work with as archaeologists. Uh, The Chickasaw have a tribal historic preservation office that's incredibly active. They buy sites, they preserve sites, they excavate sites. Um, So it would be different in the sense that I think my research agenda, potentially even my methods, which sites I dug, might be um, determined by the, the tribe in a bigger way than mine are being determined by a tribe. Um, but I don't actually know that it would be that much harder. It would just be really different. Though sometimes some tribes it would be harder. Uh, some tribes are, uh, so for example, working in the American Southwest now is very difficult. There are a lot of tribes there. Um, a lot of the land is tribally owned, which is not the case in the, the American East for sure. So they so they face different challenges, um. There's a different environment for archaeologists there, and I do think this would be a bigger challenge. I actually think that uh, that came to a head more recently at Penn with my hire, that a lot of the people who applied to take Bob Purcell's job were Southwesternists, but Penn wanted someone who could run a field school, and the Southwest is a hard place to run a field school right now. But the Southeast is easier because the tribes don't own the land. Um, The tribes are smaller in terms of their numbers um they're more spread out it's just a different environment um in many ways they're more friendly to archaeologists so it depends on where you work in some ways i think it would be harder um, i mean in some ways i would love to have a native group that was really fascinated by my site that could help drive my research questions i think it would be really interesting to know what they would care about and what they'd be interested in um so it would provide its challenges, but it would also it would also be really cool. It's got I, I feel like sometimes I'm sometimes I wish someone like really cared whose ancestors these were. I find it a little bit sad that these sites aren't cared about in the same capacity. Not to say the native tribes don't care about them. They do, but they care more about other places and they for better or first, they assume I'm going to take okay care of it, I think. Um,
2: Maybe that's part of what you're doing, is uh, is building up that knowledge to make those connections.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the Natchez, we have a lot of historical documentation about the Natchez. Um, but yeah, we don't have as many of their oral histories recorded. You know, like there are some tribes, the Cherokee, for example, have an incredibly rich um, oral tradition. It was recorded in the early historic period. It's, it's still thriving today amongst the community. Um, and the the Natchez had that I know they had that but well we don't know it we didn't write it all down they're not here to tell us about it anymore and there are some there are some Natchez ancestry individuals out there that may know bits and pieces but it's been so intertwined with with Chickasaw heritage and with Catawba heritage and you know I mean I do think it's interesting I think we have a window to a society that in some ways we don't know all that much about and this is our only window we can't go back through other records we got to do it through archaeology so I, I think that's cool it's a big responsibility um, and, and I think that whenever you read a lot of the you know the public a lot of times I get comments on articles that I write for the public that are like I was just talking about this with Jane today they're like, well can you just tell us like upfront what mounds are used for? <laughs> and it's like, well, no. I mean, I can I could give you a long list of things they're used for, but I can't you know, I can't just answer that question. And I think that that's one of those challenges for archaeologists in dealing with those types of questions. It's like native groups are incredibly variable. They don't all believe the same thing. They didn't all do the same thing. So when we're asked those questions we have to say well at my site this particular group that doesn't exist anymore we don't have a name for this is how they did it and that's really challenging to make people interested in but by digging a lot at these places and going back to the same culture over and over again you can start to paint that picture it's not just happening at Feltus, it's now happening at smith creek as well and hopefully in 10 years i'll know that it's happening three other places and i can make a case that it was actually a more widespread belief system um but, yeah, so I, I mean, I, do, I think it's important to dig these sites that don't have a direct, directly associated tribe, but still take into consideration what the, the, the potentially associated tribes might want.
0: We've learned quite a bit about the Smith Creek Archaeological Project thus far, but Meg won't be doing this all by herself. Next time, we'll meet some of the other participants in this summer's project and find out a little bit about what they're expecting to get out of this field season. We'll talk to you then. To find out more about the Penn Museum, visit us online at www.penn.museum. You can also read more about the Smith Creek Archaeological Project on the Penn Museum blog at penn.museum/blog.